Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is Videocast Episode 105, Podcast Episode 95 for the week ending October 21st, 2021. Got a lot to cover. This has been a busy, busy week. Um, and how we're going to break it down, because I know some of you have had a chance to review the media that, that I've done this week, uh, which has been a, a, a quite a bit of it and quite a bit of detail within each. We'll touch on some key highlights in the beginning, and then if we have time during the article of the week, we'll drill down a little bit more. But I had a unique opportunity yesterday to do an interview for the first time to speak in front of a group of college students. It was the University of Bristol's Women in Finance Society, led by Nell Boyd. And it was just a tremendous opportunity. I, I didn't know what to expect. Nell was a complete professional. She sent me a bunch of questions the day before. Uh, and you'll, as you get through the interview and the live Q&A session, you'll see that it went in all different directions, which is great. O oftentimes the best things come from uh, the least likely places. Um, my suggestion is if you have any young people that are trying to break into the business or early in their career, I would pass this on to them because I do cover a lot of my career, how I got in, uh, different uh, directions I took. And we also do go into a tremendous amount of market situations, how I deal with certain market situations, how we look for stocks, how we look at the market. Uh, so you know, if I had a choice, do I spend 45 minutes watching that interview or watching the podcast? I, you know, I'd probably go for that interview. That was really a special interview. I think Nell did a great job uh, and, um, and, and worth a while. But we're going to make this, this uh, 45 minutes to an hour extremely valuable as well. So thanks to Nell Boyd. Uh, one of the key highlights, I, I wanted to give her, you know, we went into my whole background and career and stuff, and you can listen to that at your will if, you, if you're interested. And we also talked about best trades of all time that I've done worst trades of all time and what I've done and what I learned, etc. Um, but the, the key thing that I wanted to impart on these students was some tips that I give to everyone that has a value tilt or wants to get into business. And it was basically five steps and some of them I've given out in the past. But uh, first and foremost, you know, in, in my world, uh, if you're going to learn business, the number one person in the world is Warren Buffett. So the first suggestion that I give to everyone is to read every single annual letter that Warren Buffett has ever written, uh, both at Berkshire Hathaway and before that in his uh, uh, hedge fund days uh, when he ran the investment partnership. And you can get all those, uh, the Berkshire letters going back, you know, 40 some odd years, 50 some odd years uh, at BerkshireHathaway.com. And the hedge fund letters, you just have to Google, just Google Buffett Investment Partnership Letters. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. It's Warren Buffett's favorite book. And what I shared with the students was there are a lot of ways to make money and have a great career, uh, or if you're interested to become wealthy. Uh, the com common denominator is you have to get control of capital. Uh, that's the name of the game. I learned that early on. I've shared a couple stories about that in the past. And you can do that a multitude of ways. One, you can manage outside money. Uh, two, you can do it through real estate where you can leverage the properties and banks will lend you other people's money on the assets. Uh, and three is you can do what the Elon Musk of the world and Jeff Bezos, you start your own company and you leverage 
other people's capital through the through the public markets, uh, and you can build uh, wealth and equity that way. Um, the third suggestion I gave them is. Uh, often you'll see old pictures of Warren Buffett and in the background there's these large green binders. They're the value line investment survey binders and you can get them free through your library or you can subscribe online or you can still get the paper ones. Uh, but to read five companies a day, it's a page a company. You can see what they've done, revenue per share, cash flow per share, earnings per share, a one pager about what's, what's happening with uh, recent developments, etc. And if you do five a day, you know, within a year, you're going to know 1,500, 1,800 companies. I think they cover about 2,000 or, or a little bit more. And it's not that you're going to get investment ideas. It's that you're going to get familiar with a broad swath of the American economy. And, um, and then you'll find things where it triggers ideas for you then to do further research, to read the annual report, and start your process from there. But... Uh, by having that background, you just have these points of reference uh, that when you see different headlines and you see different things hitting, you'll have that you know, good background of 2,000 uh, some odd larger companies in the U.S. that you've done a little research on. So five a day, just a discipline. Uh, four, if you're looking to uh, impress a potential employer, uh, I've always found in life, give value before you expect value and, and most often give value and don't expect value. Uh, uh, and, um, and it, you know, the universe takes care of that, uh, in, in terms of reciprocation one way or another. But, um, you know, some of my best moves were in writing up the best ideas. You know, when I went to work for, um, at the second fund, uh, Cornwall Capital, uh, I didn't send them a resume. I sent them an idea that made them 500% in three months, which was uh, long puts on soybeans in the summer of uh, 2012. They put 1% of their portfolio, uh, 5 million bucks. They made 25 million bucks in the next three months. So, uh, and, and then they wanted to talk about uh, working with me. So, uh, you know, those are the type of things, you know, research your best idea, write it down. And, you know, a potential employer, if you're 21 years old coming out of college or whatever, uh, even if it's not great, if it shows thoughtfulness and, and a lot of effort and not sloppy work, uh, precise work, uh, they'll see if there's something to work with. Uh, and, 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 that's, uh, and it shows that you have an entrepreneurial mindset. It's not you know, degree is table stakes. Everyone has that. It's, it's what sets you apart. What value do you bring? Uh, or at least your thinking in those terms will impress a, a potential employer. And then uh, lastly is start reading the CFA materials, whether you do the tests or not, read all the books, take the problems. Uh, that, I think that's very valuable. And at a young age, you, you probably should do all the tests uh, if you can do that. So, so those are the highlights about uh, suggestions. I think you're going to find the full interview um, unlike anything you've heard on the podcast before, because Nell really crafted some good questions. Uh, and uh, I, th I think you'll like the best trades. I think you'll like the worst trade. Uh, and I think you'll like some of the commentary, how we look for um, uh, opportunities and what we do when things go against us. Uh, and, um, and so on. So definitely check that out. Let's move on. One of the um, metrics I referenced in that interview was, uh, if there are any students now that are now listening to this, 
the S&P stocks above the uh, percent of stocks above the 50-day moving average. I also referenced the 200-day moving average. And just these barometers that we've been going through over the last few months to give you a temperature of where we are in the market. So, you know, if you're looking at this, for instance, uh, you know, the market feels overheated. A lot of people have been talking about that. But if you stand back, you're, you're looking at, you know, 65% of stocks above their 50-day moving average. You usually don't get peaks until, you know, 80% in that range. So there's a little more juice. And these type of barometers, when you look at 10 or 20 at a time, can help give you a sense of the first step, which is do you want to be adding risk or taking risk off? Um, and then we go from, from that decision to, okay, what sectors are overdone on the upside and on the downside? If on the downside, why are they overdone? And then uh, if, if we understand the reasons why people are bearish and we think that's going to inflect, then we drill down further to find the best stocks within that sector, top down uh, and then bottom up. Uh, also yesterday, I, I had the privilege to be on Cheddar with Kristen Scholler. Want to thank Ali Thompson and Jeff Cohen for having me on. A uh, couple key highlights, and we'll drill down further if we have time. Um, you know, just generally that the pessimism coming into the Q2 earnings season was uh, um, uh, overdone, is basically what it came down to. And we had kind of warned coming into the season that we felt that way and that, that earnings would be very constructive. To give you an idea, um, estimates were that earnings were going to grow 27.5%. Um, now it looks like they're going to grow 30%, but I think by the t end of this earnings season, we're going to see that they're closer to 40%. No one's calling for that, by the way. But uh, So how I get there is two, two ways. Number one is uh, the average beat over the last five years is about 9%. So that would take us to 35 straight out of the gate. Um, it, however, in the last five quarters, because expectations have been so low, the average beat's been 19%. That would take us to like 45, 47%, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing is that um, net profit margins are near record highs. Everyone's worried about supply chain bottlenecks, inflation, input costs, yada, 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 although the PPI came in a little bit uh, lighter than expected, which is bullish. Um, even though the CPI is still a little bit hot. But the net profit margin, margins uh, was expected to be 12.1. It's now tracking to 12.3. Margins are better than expected. You don't get that if these problems are gonna be permanent. Um, and that compares to the last five-year average of 10.9%. So this will be the third highest quarter of margins in recorded history, only behind the last two quarters. Uh, so, uh, so that's very positive to see, and you wouldn't see that um, if companies ha hadn't managed around these short-term issues and, uh, and that. So my base case is that, and I've said it for you know month, month and a half now, whatever, uh, we're going to see 2022 estimates had been flatlined. They actually went down a little bit going into earnings with the pessimism. Uh, about 219, 220. We think they're going to push over 230 before this earnings season is over. Uh, and that will make the market look a lot more reasonable in terms of it'll bring the multiple down. Uh, and, uh, and that will be a tailwind for continued 
uh, grind higher, you know, is basically it versus uh, everyone looking for big crashes uh, in August and September. I can't tell you the number. And you, you remember if you were on this podcast, the number of uh, strategists calling for 10 to 20 percent corrections in August and September was uh, consensus. That was consensus. I mean, pound the table strategists coming out. And uh, you, you all know the names if you watch watch any TV. So um, <clears throat> So that was that, that with Kristen. I also went into a couple of picks uh, before we got cut off by uh, Tesla earnings, which I commented on. Um, but um, it, one more thing about the S&P 500, by the way. Uh, the 12-month bottom-up consensus price target for the S&P 500 is 50.51, which is 11.5% above yesterday's close. Uh, I think this is very reasonable considering that we're going to have at least 10% earnings growth next year. Uh, you know, and, and in that type of environment, like we saw in 2013 to 14 and 13 in anticipation of taper, the market had a, a big year. And then in the taper year, 2014, it was up, you know, mid teens, more modest, more choppy, expect more volatility, probably bigger than you'll get your 10% corrections, uh, bigger than the three to 5% that we had called for this year in January and, and that we've received, um, uh, so, so that's kind of the general outlook. And then I covered uh, a couple names. First, Cigna. Cigna started to move big this week, um, uh, finally. And um, we've been talking about that one for a number of weeks. And so, um, yeah, popped uh, from, it, was, it got down to 198, popped up to 216. Uh, we think that's going to work its way to new highs over the next three to six months, uh, for sure and beyond. And the reason it popped is because two of its peers uh, beat on the top and bottom line, uh, United Health last week, and increased guidance, uh, and Anthem yesterday, which is when it got its big pop, uh, and um, beat on the top line, bottom line, and Cigna reports on November 4th, so we're also expecting good things from Cigna. Uh, Cigna's trading at nine and a half times next year's earnings. Uh, compared to the market at 21 times, uh, and its average historic multiple of 12 times. Their pharmacy services segment grew 14% last quarter. Their script volume grew 13%. Their health insurance business helped uh, premium increases, helped revenue 5%, has a 2% dividend yield while you wait. And the factor that crushed the stock last quarter uh, was the... Uh, so it dropped from 270 down to 200, so a 25% drop or so, uh, was the, um, the, um, the, medical, the medical, uh, medical care ratio was higher than normal due to the increased temporary costs of COVID care, which are now going to subside as Delta's rolling over. So even if they were a little tough in Q3, they will be able to guide. We're seeing them come down in recent weeks dramatically, and we expect our forward run rate to be this, and therefore guidance is going to be this, and that's all the market cares about, and I think we're going to see big follow-through on this move and uh, and a nice move into year-end. So that's a big one. And then Boeing. We love Boeing. Bad headlines every day. The stock is holding strong. The big catalyst is going to be probably around the virtual meeting with uh, uh, Biden and Xi Jinping. That's happening, thawing relations, that's a positive thing, and they need planes. 
So once the 737 MAX is ungrounded in China, as it was in India four or five weeks ago, as it has been in many other countries, I think you're going to see Boeing jump, you know, 20, 30 percent in a matter of weeks. Uh, I, I think it's that severe and I think that's going to be the catalyst. But we'll see. I, I, you know, this thing is coiled up and ready to go. Uh, you know, we just need, need the catalyst. I mean, they, they operate in a duopoly. You're seeing international travel coming back for vaccinated passengers starting November 8th. People can come back to the U.S. as long as they have proof of vaccination. The pent-up demand is huge, uh, so that's going to be a good thing. Moving right along, I um, want to thank Mike Walter and Zaina Al-Shaib for having me on CGTN on Monday night to talk China. China missed uh, pretty big on GDP. It was their lowest growth rate, excluding last year since 1990. Uh, that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is their retail sales were beat. Uh, they were up 4.4 versus 3.3. So part of this is by design, actually. Uh, the Chinese government wants to shift their long, long-term outlook. What they're effectively trying to do is move investment from non-productive assets like real estate, which is 25% of GDP, by the way. Uh, the developed world is less than half of that, uh, into productive assets. So they want money to start to go into high-tech manufacturing, semiconductors, um, research and development, things that are, are innovative, uh, cutting edge, that are going to drive future growth versus property, levered property speculation, which is, uh, which is a house of cards, as we're seeing with Evergrande. So... Um, so, so there, Beijing's uh, uh, GDP targets for this year are 6% and 5%. 10 banks have taken down GDP targets uh, from an average of 8.5% to 8.3% as a result of some of these policies. And we're going to talk about um, uh, these policies in terms of, um, first is the three, three red line policy, which is just the uh, gearing ratio for real estate they've got the liability to asset ratio has to be less than 70 percent the net gearing ratio less than 100 percent and the cash to short-term debt ratios of more than one percent um, as a result of that home sales tumbled by 16.9 percent home sales by value tumbled by 16.9 percent in september following a 19.7 percent drop in august um, so they're willing to take some short-term pain to take that froth out of the market. Um, and they're also trying to uh, enact a nationwide property tax. And we'll talk about that in some of the recent headlines. The second policy that's obviously hurting them in the short term is their common prosperity theme. It's an agenda designed to encourage wealth redistribution. They can't raise wages because if they raise wages, they're going to lose their trade surplus. Uh, and um, they don't want to do that. So they're looking for ways to redistribute from the rich. And they have to do that at the local government level because uh, at the local government level, they get 40 to 60% of revenues from property. Uh, so they want, it, they want to tilt that equation and, uh, and, and work things out. Uh, and then finally was the regulatory crackdowns over the summer, tech crackdown, et cetera. So all of that was felt in GDP. Uh, and they had the energy shortage. Uh, which was also self-inflicted because they put restrictions on imports from Australian coal. 
Um, they uh, had plans to reduce carbon emissions, which they've scrapped. They're now firing up all the dormant coal plants, uh, rocking and rolling in the last few weeks. Uh, you know, emissions be damned. We need power. And that's the way the world works. Uh, and then a, um, a surge in, uh, in exports contributed to, the, to their power cuts because of uh, huge demand from the developed world that had a different type of stimulus. In China, they gave all the money. Uh, they put all the money into infrastructure, into construction and property, unfortunately. And in the developed world, they put it into the hands of the consumers, which has driven demand for goods. And now we're hoping is shifting into services now that the economy is opening. But those goods were largely provided by China. Um, so that's all the bad news. The good news is that we believe now with the uh, 2020 Congress where uh, Xi Jinping is expecting to have a third term in power. Uh, you don't want, I, I, he's not going to want the economy too soft. He's going to want to show a strong hand like he did this year in spades. Um, uh, but he's not going to want people unemployed and protesting and angry and having a lower standard of living because uh, that, that's never been a good strategy to get reelected. Uh, so my, my bet is that they're going to have to reduce the reserve requirement ratio for banks another 50 basis points like they did in July. That'll be very stimulative because everything works on a lagged effect. I could also see them lowering the policy rate and uh, targeted fiscal support th through more local government bond sales and slight monetary easing. Uh, they're going to have to continue now with credit spreads rising due to the Evergrande ensuring ample liquidity in the interbank market, accelerating infrastructure development, and uh, relaxing some aspects of overall credit and, uh, and real estate policies uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, if they don't act soon on those fronts, there's a serious risk that the major drivers of Chinese growth, i.e. property investment, consumption, and exports, are all going to find themselves moving downward and, and set them in a, a direction that'll be hard to... Uh, to pull back from. So, uh, so expect some positive news out of the bad numbers. And uh, I think everything's setting up properly. We've been talking about this since the beginning of the year. We said they tightened too early and everything works on it. You know, if you want to learn one thing from this call, other than controlling capital, uh, everything works on a six to nine month lag when it comes to policy and they are reaping what they've sown. And if they change course and they plant some better seeds and ease uh, in the next couple of months, they're going to be sowing what they reap right in time for the uh, the uh, 20th Congress uh, next fall, and their economy will be will be humming for for their objectives. Um, so thanks to Mike and Zaina. I, also on Monday, I was on Yahoo Finance with Alexis Christophorus. Uh, thank you to Taylor Clothier for that and. Um, want to uh, a couple quick things that I uh, covered there that I wasn't able to cover with Kristen. Um, you know, the, the key thing uh, there that was different, obviously I emphasized the uh, consumer being in great shape. We had uh, retail sales beat on Friday up seven tenths versus uh, retail sales were expected to be down two tenths month-on-month, month, up 13.95% year-on-year. So we know the customer's strong. Despite the Delta, uh, the tail of Delta, they, they want to spend. And, and if you lock them up, they'll buy goods on Amazon. If you 
let them out of the doors. They'll go to restaurants and, and buy services, your choice, but they're going to spend, spend, spend. You loaded them with cash. Their balance sheets are better than ever. And, uh, and we're just getting started. And by the way, uh, one of the commentators, I think Kristen asked me, well, you know, XYZ said he, they expect things are going to slow down because, you know, we're at the end of stimulus. We got another $2 trillion coming. They're going to negotiate it down from $3.5 trillion to probably $1.99 trillion and jam it the hell through reconciliation. And that's going to be stimulative in the short term. We'll figure out how to pay for it long term. Seems to be the, uh, the recurring theme of U.S. governance, uh, regardless of party. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and that, that's going to be coming through as well. So, um, covered earnings and guidance. We, we talked about, um, in addition to Boeing and Signal, we talked about Lockheed Martin. That's actually had a big run now since we started talking about it a number of weeks ago. And then, uh, we talked about the Fed and Taper. We think it's a December decision, not a November decision because he needs to see the employment reports. Uh, and uh, likely an implementation in early Q- Q1 of next year, maybe in December, but uh, I think more likely in January. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Um, the key is that yields are going to be rising into that. As we've seen, the 10-year yield is up to 168 basis points, which we've been talking about since 130 basis points. We think we're going to see a two-handle before, by the time taper actually starts, and that could, in fact, be the peak in yields for many years. That's a non-consensus view. And uh, I think that will be the time to, believe it or not, buy U.S. Treasuries. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in this week's call as well. And then lastly, after the podcast uh, last week, I had the pleasure to be on CNA Singapore with Avril Hung and want to thank uh, Marianne over there at CNA in Singapore um, and uh, Olivia. So Marianne Inike and Olivia Marzuki. Also over at Yahoo, I wanted to thank, in addition to Taylor Clothier, uh, Ivana Fritas, Brent Sanchez, and Alexandra Canal for having me on that show. And as far as the... Uh, Asia First with Avril. We did a lot of um, uh, stuff on the U.S. supply chain because everyone's worried about that. And I just quoted, you know, Jamie Dimon was on, CEO of J.P. Morgan, basically saying it would be a non-issue by early to mid-2022. We believe that's the case as well. Uh, As far as the inflation, you know, wages are not transitory. Some of the other stuff will be. Uh, But uh, we have a great commentary from one of my favorite sell-side strategists um, that we're going to, Jim Paulson, that we're going to talk about in just a minute here. Actually, we can get into it now. Um, I like Jim Paulson. He was on CNBC and saying that uh, rising prices could actually contribute to an economic boom. Quote, if we just end up elevating the rate of inflation a little bit on a permanent basis, I think that might actually do a lot of good. Uh, We've been fighting inflation for four decades in this country, always being quick to tighten, slow to ease. And the result is we've created some of the most sluggish growth over the last 15 years that we've had in the entire post-war history. It stokes and Paulson contends higher inflation encourages more aggressive behaviors by both businesses and consumers with profitable results. It stokes animal spirits. If people think prices are going to go up over time, that means you might feel better about getting higher wage hikes, for example. 
and it might cause businesses to expand more operations because they know they can grow into it with pricing flexibility. He's also not worried about the long-term impact of the supply chain uh, turmoil. Uh, Paulson attributes the backlog to a temporary shock caused by the COVID lockdowns, agreed on that front as well. When you get companies preparing for a depressionary bust and instead give them a post-war boom, they just can't catch up. <laughs> they, they contracted operations to the minimums to survive a pandemic. Uh, I still think we might be left with a persistently higher average rate of inflation. His base case calls for 3 to 3.25 in inflation becoming the norm. I agree with that. And he suggested it's a sweet spot for the economy. Over the past two decades, it's hovered around 2%. There are some things, there are some good things from a little higher inflation, not runaway, but from a little higher inflation. Maybe we're headed to that environment. And if we are, maybe we're going to get a little better economic outcome. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's actually where, where it's headed. I really loved how he put that together. So, um, so we, we covered that on uh, Asia First. We also uh, talked about earnings estimates being too low. And um, uh, the Evergrande crisis, I believe, will be ring-fenced. There will be other property developers. There will be knock-on effects, but they'll nationalize some of the assets. They'll make the uh, uh, local currency bondholders whole. They'll screw the USD bondholders, and uh, it'll be on to the next. They've, they've got plenty of practice in this game. Uh, and then um, we talked Cigna and we talked a little Alibaba, which we'll get to. So that was good news. And then finally, want to thank Devik Jane for including me in his article in Reuters. Uh, this was, I think, on Monday morning. Uh, futures were down. I said there's some weak data out of China, which was the G GDP numbers. A little concerning on a global basis. And then market participants came into this earnings with a very pessimistic view, but banks dramatically exceeded expectations. Now we're in the second week of earnings, which is more dependent on the general economy as a whole. So it's a show me kind of market now. And by and large, earnings have been good. We'll, we'll see the, the summary tomorrow. Um, okay, question of the week uh, from Ben, first name only. Tom, you've said there is too much oil exuberance when people are talking $100 oil, well, now they're talking $200 oil. What catalyst other than the Iran deal could cause a correction? Uh, and any new developments on an Iran deal since your last podcast? Uh, second question, is XLF getting a little ahead of itself due for a short-term pullback? Well, I've talked about both of these. I think in the short term, uh, they, you know, they're, they're getting a little frothy. And what's, what's mind-boggling to me is that... Um, Last year, we pounded the table on energy and banks, and no one wanted to talk about it. Now that, that they're all up 100% plus, everyone wants to talk about oil and banks. All the questions are about energy and banks. Should I buy them now? No, you should have bought them last year. Uh, are they going to go higher over the next three to five years? Yes. Do we like them for the next three to five? Yes. Do we think that you could get a, a abrupt pullback sometime in the next few months? Yes. Uh, maybe it'll be when taper is announced. Maybe it'll be beforehand, but as far as it relates to the Iran deal, it's coming to a head. This is from the Washington Post today. Uh, U.S. and Iran enter a decisive period to revive nuclear, cor uh, nuclear cord or risk failure, U.N. watchdog chief says. So it's do or die time. The next few weeks will be de decisive in determining whether U.S. and Iran can return to indirect negotiations and resume efforts to revive the 2015 nuclear Iran deal between them ahead of the International Atomic Agency on Wednesday. So this is one factor that'll, that'll knock, you know, take all the Johnny-come-latelys that are jumping on energy uh, too late. 
uh, in the short term, fine in the intermediate to long term, uh, need to get their heads handed to them. That's just the way the market works. It's not my opinion. Uh, and that'll probably happen either with something like this uh, or some big build one week. You'll have a 10 million barrel build uh, or you'll have some fear over a, Delta, Del, uh, a, a new variant in, in Britain or some silly thing will come and people will get worried. Or OPEC will, you know, the, the weaker OPEC sisters will start saying we, we're going to pump more oil like they always do. Uh, and, and that'll be that. But here's the crazy bets on $200 oil. And the same schmucks that are putting on options for $200 oil obviously can't read the forward curve because if you look at the forward curve, it's still telling you that, um, uh, you know, we're, we're near a peak. So Bank of America increasingly, we're looking for reasons why oil has moved too far. Despite the headline print, the world is not short oil. Uh, OPEC plus remains in the driver's seat with ample capacity. And by the way, they get away with it with this administration. You know, in the past administration, you know, when they said pump, they pumped. Uh, and, uh, or when they said knock it off, they knocked it off. That's no longer the case. OPEC remains in the driver's seat. We're now on our knees asking them when to pump and not pump. Uh, looking at the futures curve, none of this should be that surprising. So, um, so this is the name of the game. And I think that they're slow, they're slow playing their hand over at OPEC and sticking with their schedule because they see this. I mean, there is production capacity. The U.S. companies are scared to death to do it because they know no one wants to invest them with them uh, because of all the ESG pressure. So they want the stock price to go up so managers are forced to invest with them. Otherwise, they lag the ind indices. Uh, so the supply uh, will be constrained for a little while, but you know, another year or so, they're going to just dump it back on. So the answer to your question is, in, you know, it works as a great inflation hedge. Um, you know, and if we are going to have above trend inflation, which I agree with Jim Paulson, uh, you do want to have exposure to them. But if you're asking me, you know, this week, uh, if I buy energy stocks, are they going to go down or up? I, I don't know and I don't care. I bought them down here. Uh, and that's where we talked about them on the podcast. Um, you know, but if you step back a little bit, um, you know, there's no reason that this shouldn't make new highs. You're going to have increased demand. So, you know, you're at 60, you could see the XLE 80, 85, 90 over the next few years. Some stocks will be up another, they'll be up another double, but this is a monster move. You know, you're up 125% just in the indices, which means some names are up 150%, 200%. Do I want to add a lot of risk here? No. Do I want to hold what I have? You bet. And some names, do I want to trim a little bit like I did in June? Maybe. Um, but by and large, holding the core positions, inflation hedge, and I think this goes a lot higher. Uh, as far as XLF financials, again, that, those were our two biggest calls last year. You know, this is, this is a monster run. They're up uh, almost 200% off their lows, and this is an index, which means some of the names are up bigger. Um, and, you know, if you look at, at different types of corrections, after you've had that big move out of the dislocation, you kind of grind up and sideways. So there are better uses for new capital, but I like my core holdings here. So, so that's the answer to your question. I don't know and I don't care what happens to either of these groups in the next one to two to four weeks. It really doesn't matter to me. I'm just saying that if you're putting new money to work, I think there are far better things. And the one thing that no one wants to talk about, they all want to say, should I try to squeeze? You know, it's like picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. It's like, you know, when they're dislocated, you could be, you know, 
you don't have to be so surgical and precise. After they've had 150% moves, you have to be so perfect to make five or 10%. Why would you even do it? You know, pick up Alibaba. The, you know, the thing's going to double over the next three to five years. Uh, you know, it's up 28% off its lows in the last two and a half weeks. Uh, these are the type of things that, that uh, are, are worth focusing on right now. Those things that no one wants, not the things that no one wanted last year when we were buying, the things that no one wants this year while we're buying that no one wants to talk about. <laughs> so um, uh, that, that's where my focus would be. So uh, Warren Buffett, a couple quotes to, to kick us off. We're not, well, halfway through. Uh, Buffett, we enjoy the process far more than the proceeds. Uh, we enjoy both, that's for damn sure. Uh, and then Munger, which we love, uh, doubled down on his Baba bet. The wise ones bet heavily when the world offers them that opportunity. The big, they bet big when they have the odds. And the rest of the time, they don't. It's just that simple. And we did the same exact thing. We bought a ton of stock. Uh, and we've, we've said as much uh, on, the, uh, on the call at 148. We didn't get the 130 handle. Uh, so we've got uh, stock that's deep in the money. We've got options that are still out of the money, but I think are going to be in the money before we know it. Uh, and this is going to be one of our best trades, I think, uh, as well. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. And I, and I think when you listen to Nell's uh, interview, the college interview, I, I go through one that'll just blow your mind. Um, uh, you know, how it went against us and then how it, how it turned out. And it's still, by the way, going. It's, 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 it's an amazing story. So de definitely uh, check into that one. And I think Bob is going to be in that same, same neighborhood. So very pleased to see that. Uh, okay, Ryan Dietrich, uh, November. We're moving into November in nine days since 1950. November is the best month of the year for stocks. Past 10 years, November is the best month of the year. Ranked second in the past 20 years in a post-election year. Uh, so November is not for Turkey, it's for bulls, apparently, according to Ryan Dietrich over at LPL. So that's some quantitative data. Now let's talk about some Chinese drivers. Uh, this was the most exciting headline that I've seen in a long time. It's one that we've been anticipating for six weeks, eight weeks on this podcast. But here is the thing from Bloomberg. President Xi dials back China's economic overhaul as masses feel pain. If you remember, I said that, you know, they're going to have a couple hundred thousand people unemployed from their education crackdown. Authorities recalibrate in the face of power crunch, property woes. Property woes. Xi faces difficult balancing act on reducing debt, emissions, etc. So they're, they're walking back these things. Why? Because it's in their interest. And so it's a balancing act. They want the long-term structural reforms. Uh, and at the same time, they want uh, their people to be happy and not protest and not, uh, you know, not, uh, not go against them. So um, I put out a pod, Odd Lots podcast uh, over the weekend in my top, I think it was top 45 reads for Saturday uh, that I post every day. And uh, this was one of the best podcasts I've heard about China. It's by a guy, um, well, it's Joe, it's called Odd Lots, Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. That's a pretty popular podcast. <clears throat> Their guest was this China expert called Michael Pettis. And Michael Pettis really laid out a great explanation for why the Chinese government is doing what they're doing, when they're doing, uh, etc. And he's basically says that they're in a box. Uh, 
Um, if they take away the over leverage and, and excess investment in non-productive assets like property, they're going to grow at a normalized rate of 2 to 3% GDP. Um, so he estimates that you know, 40 to 50% of their growth uh, is due to this malinvestment. So uh, they, you know, they cannot, and, and the government themselves have distinguished two types of growth, one being the high quality growth, uh, the sustainable growth of consumption. They want to increase internal consumption. By the way, who's going to be the biggest beneficiary of growing internal consumption? Alibaba. Okay, they deal in that. But I think the bigger story with Alibaba is the cloud. And you'll see this week they put out a new chip, which is what the Chinese government wants. The Chinese government wants things. They want manufacturing. They want semiconductors. And if Alibaba goes in that direction, which is uh, uh, married with their cloud business, which is the growth driver, if you know anything about Amazon, all of their profits that drove the, um, the retail side of the business were from, from the cloud business, from Amazon Web Services, and AliCloud is growing in, in, in just uh, at a faster pace than Amazon is in that business right now, and they're growing all over Asia. So it's an incredible story. So, so the high quality growth is consumption, exports, and business investment, uh, manufacturing, etc. Um, and the low quality growth is the investment in the property sec sector, uh, sector and the local government spending on uh, infrastructure, you know, bridges to nowhere and that type of stuff. So they want more in the first bucket, less in the second bucket, and it's a choppy process doing that. Um, they've also talked about how they're limited in what they can redistribute from the rich to the poor because it's just not going to move the needle. They really need to move the needle at the local government level uh, and have more productive investment at the local government level, but they can't raise, raise, rate, raise wages too much because then they'll lose the trade surplus. Uh, and if they lower wages uh, and the surplus becomes too large, then the developed world will um, not like it and, uh, and, and put uh, restrictions and trade barriers and, and that type of thing. But uh, I would say that is a worthwhile listen if you want to know more about what's motivating the Chinese government to do what they do, why they're in a box, and why we had anticipated that they were going to have to backpedal on some of this and, and be more moderate and start to ease again. Uh, you know, we, we, we knew this would start to happen, and, and now it's playing out. But Michael Pettis really drills down as to uh, the granularity as to why and, and the five different directions they can go uh, and, and kind of finding that, that, that desirable balance, which is a balancing act. So, uh, so really, really great. Okay, opinion follows trend. Uh, Steve, Steve Romick, who runs $26 billion, uh, has just uh, filed that he has dramatically increased his Baidu and Baba shares. So some of the smarter managers, he's known as a contrarian, he's a very good manager. Um, uh, and uh, so now he's saying the pain is in the rearview mirror. Huge increase in uh, added uh, 5 million shares of BABA, 3.5 million shares of Baidu in his most recent filing. Uh, some other headlines, China faces slower growth path as it pursues longer term reforms. We covered that. China Xi says common prosperity doesn't mean full equality. So these are walkbacks. There's a balancing act. You know, if we if we kill the producers, 
we're not going to have any jobs. That's a problem. If you don't have any jobs, you have riots. If you have riots, you have changes in government sooner or later, and they don't want that. So they figured that out, uh, fortunately, sooner than, than too later. They were right at the edge of the cliff, and they pulled it back, and now, um, uh, now we have some progress. Alibaba unveils in-house chip to boost cloud services. Amazon and Microsoft beware. This is the type of stuff that the Chinese government wants to see. This is going to help Alibaba's uh, cloud business, which is the growth driver moving forward, and that's huge. Uh, more headlines. Talk about a change in sentiment. Hong Kong stocks rise fastest in world as crackdown concern ebbs. Alibaba surges after Ma has traveled overseas. They saw him in his yacht in Italy, and the stock jumped 6%. <laughs> I guess they realized he's alive, uh, and that's a good thing. Hang Seng. China Enterprise Index up 10% from five-year low. You can go through this article in Bloomberg. And uh, this is interesting. This is the Hang Seng fells to levels rarely seen in the past 13 years. But also you can see that it, it tends to rebound from these, uh, these subdued levels as it's doing quite again. And it tends to do it fast. You know, big moves in a year, uh, big moves in three months. And, uh, and I think we're starting to see that now. Uh, as anticipated. Okay, again, opinion follows trend. Why an emerging market fund is sticking with Chinese stocks? So all the headlines are changing uh, after prices up 28.5% on Alibaba. Uh, Z is facing, uh, here's another one. Z is facing resistance from within China's Communist Party to the proposed nationwide property tax aimed at curbing housing speculation. So they have all these grand ideas. Uh, it's always a good idea until you get punched in the face and then they got to back off and do something more moderate uh, that will get them towards their long-term structural reforms but not destroy everything in the short term. Moving along, uh, Wall Street giants turning into China stock bulls. Opinion follows trend. That's been our theme for the last two years since we've been doing this. BlackRock and UBS have upgraded the asset class to overweight. <laughs> Investor comfort with regulations earnings cited as key reasons. So uh, you had tomorrow's newspaper today for the last uh, couple of months. Uh, now all the analysts are rushing to upgrade these stocks. Uh, Pinduoduo seen as top pick in e-commerce by Morgan Stanley. Analyst seems long-term value and 30% upside. Uh, Benchmark reiterates top pick call on Baidu sees 100% upside. Uh, so you're, we're going to see more and more of these. This was the, um, the stocks we put out on the 16th when everyone thought the world was ending. We said there's still a lot of cheap stocks. UAL shot up. It's breathing. The banks reported, uh, the banks, the airlines reported earnings. They're okay. Obviously, they got hit a little bit with Delta. This is a buy. Uh, the healthcare ones are taken off. We talked about Cigna, this is Centene. Intel got, got the stuffing punched out of it in earnings after hours just now. So this is a buying opportunity for long term. This will be an $80, $90 stock in five years. Uh, Dollar Tree took off after the September weakness and that's gonna work itself high, to new highs. Uber we talked about, that took off right away. Um, CTXS, you know, look, you can just look through them. They've all just started to move from that period of maximum pessimism. BAP, I remember getting emails on this uh, at, in the trading service. People are like, is it ever going to turn around? Yes, it's going to turn around. It's up 30% so, uh, in a few weeks. So Vertex, uh, you know, all these. And then Cigna finally started moving, man. That, would, that took a few weeks. And then from these 198 lows, it's up to 216. I think this works to new highs 
uh, hopefully before the end of the year, if not uh, by, by first quarter. Lockheed Martin, this was a monster move almost to the 16th itself from 337 to 373, so that's up 20% in a month. Plus, uh, or le- a little less than that, but that's a big move, you know, whatever, four, 40 points. Um, uh, VF Cor- even VF Corp with the supply chain issues is up from 65 to 75. This is, this is weeks, all of them. You know, BABA, 28.5%, up 40 points. Win, up big. Uh, from 80 to not big, but you know, in a matter of four weeks, from 80 to 91, when no one wanted it, it's that's going to work higher. Even despite you saw Las Vegas Sands earnings were a little bit weak, but the stock kind of held in there anyway, in spite of a weak earnings. That's what you want to see. You want to see strength on bad news. That you don't make your money when things are good. You make your money when things are getting less bad. That's when the most money is made. Um, uh, you know, all of these have bounced up from the, those regions, and, and a lot of them are still cheap, it's particularly the drug stocks. The drug stocks, you know, the drug stocks and the staples are very interesting because we think rates are going to work, the 10-year is going to work to uh, 2% by Q1. So that's kind of a headwind for those stocks in the short term. Uh, but I, I think it's a relative outperformance because they've, they've been so beat down and that's what we said on a couple of our segments is that, yeah, we like the value in the cyclicals. We've talked about the Boeings. We've talked about the Cygnas. We've talked about all that stuff. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean, it doesn't preclude other groups from performing. We just thought that there was more relative outperformance. And we've seen it in the last couple of weeks in banks. Uh, but these things are getting so cheap that e- even in the face of uh, rising rates, I think some of them are, are going to start to get bid as well. Um, Okay, let's move right along to uh, the article of the week. We've covered most of this, uh, you know, the pay it forward stock market. Um, you know, I, I learned this philosophy um, of pay it forward from my first mentor, employer in the industry. He used to fly an entire class uh, from his Midwest college alma mater at his own expense every year to either meet Warren Buffett in Omaha or major business leaders like Jamie Dimon in New York City. They'd share their experiences and impart their wisdom uh, on the young students just starting in their careers. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I kind of walk you through uh, what a great job Nell did with getting me the questions ahead of time and the interview. And I think, I think many of the students will find that helpful. And again, I'd pass that one along if, if you have younger people uh, on the career side. And if you want some really interesting market insight that you haven't heard before, uh, it's it's worth a listen, even if you do it on your phone while you're out uh, going for a run or on the treadmill or or uh, riding a bike or or whatever, um, or on your Ducati going 200 miles an hour <laughs> uh, for some of you out there. Um, okay, so we went through all that. Now sentiment on Tuesday morning, I put out the summary of this month's Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. I find this to be one of the most important documents each month. The three biggest takeaways in my view were number one, short China was the third most crowded trade. In the meantime, Alibaba's now up 28.5% off its lows in the past two weeks. And look, all you needed to do was turn on the TV and you know the names, all of them that were saying that they're short Alibaba, they're short all these Chinese tech stocks. Well, they've just been short, you know, they've just had a rip your face off rally against them. And I think these things are going to push higher. Uh, in a meaningful way. They're just too cheap. I said two weeks ago that Alibaba was one of the uh, 
um, best values in public in the public security markets. Period, and uh, and that's that's uh, that's starting to be proven out. Uh, the second thing that really struck me was allocation to bonds is at an all-time low. This means that we'll likely see a peak in the 10-year yield when taper is finally started in the next uh, couple of months, which is, has been my base case. No one's talking about that. Most people think when the Fed stops buying bonds, yields go up, but the market is a discounting mechanism and the market is uh, yields are going up in anticipation. And like in 2014, I think it'll be... Uh, uh, a great opportunity to buy U.S. Treasuries. How many people are talking about buying U.S. Treasuries? It's not yet. It's not yet. I want to see two plus handle on the 10-year yield, but uh, we'll be in the market buying them. And that will probably cushion us from the first 10% correction in equities that all of you have been so eager to get all year. And I kept saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. Uh, we're only going to get 3 to 5% corrections this year, a handful of them. You can go back to the January uh, podcast uh, but we are going to get them next year in my view, and, uh, and we will be well positioned ahead of it. Why? Because we'll, be bought, we'll, be, we'll have bought 10-year treasuries when no one wants them, when the, when the yield is 2, 225, maybe even we get 250 when everyone's puking out and there are no sellers left, we'll be the buyers, and that will be the perfect setup for an equity correction when we can then lay off the bonds and buy equities on the cheap. So, um, uh, or we could be wrong about it all, but you know, history tells us that, uh, we've got a pretty good chance of having this, uh, this right. And this is the way to look at it. This is an extreme and we, we've, we've are knitting and we've built our career on, on benefiting from these extremes. And, uh, and this one will be no different, uh, managers, uh, crowded into banks and energy. So that's all you need to know right there for Ben first name only. Um, you know, we wanted banks and energy when everyone was puking them out like they're doing healthcare and staples, which is going to be our trade. It's a little early, I think, but we're going to start to be nibbling around this. I mean, Cigna, we love that we own Cigna here because everyone's out of healthcare uh, and that's going to be rip your face. And we love, what have we been buying? Industrials, because that's going to change from the red to the blue in the coming months. We'll go back to this chart in three months from now and you're going to see healthcare and industrials at the top, and you're probably going to see energy and banks they got out of uh, uh, after the fact. Um, so retail got a little exuberant this week. We saw on the uh, AAII sentiment survey, so we're keeping our eye on that. Uh, however, the fear and greed is getting closer to an extreme, but not quite there yet at 67. Let's see where it came in today. Fear and greed. Um, okay, so that came in at 69. So yeah, it's getting closer. So, you know, at when you get into the mid 70s, 80s, you want to start to lighten up on things that have run a lot as a tactical play. Uh, but for now, we're, we're, we're okay. And then the National Association of Active Investment Managers, guess what they had to do? We got the new print this morning. They had to chase, just like we said. They went from 65% equity exposure to 98% equity exposure in a week. They just chased this big rally this week. So uh, as far as economic data, um, building permits were down a bit. Uh, that's probably, due, that's September. That's probably due to Delta and, uh, and other factors. Uh, crude inventories was a draw that was better than expected. So that's still bullish. But uh, again, we, we talked about the warnings there. Continuing claims and initial jobless claims are better than expected. We expect the October and November reports to be good, which is going to give uh, Powell uh, clear to announce taper in December. 
whether they implement, you know, December 16th or wait to January, we don't know. But uh, I think we'll definitely get that announcement because he'll have his quote unquote decent reports. Existing home sales were strong. And uh, that's all we have for that. And earnings have been phenomenal. But mo- for, the mo- for the large swath of, of companies I've reported, it's been beats on top and bottom line. We'll see if they pushed up uh, consensus estimates a bit uh, at the end of the week, maybe we'll see 221, 222 and start to move towards that 230 target, which we think we'll get by the end of the year for 2022. And with that said, I want to thank everyone for listening in this week. Uh, do check out that University of Bristol if you get time. Uh, it's at hedgefundtips.com. Also click on terms. Uh, this is not investment advice, it's opinion only. And we'll see you back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one.